Awesome. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Hot Isle. My name is Brent Piotti, and with me as always... Brian Carpenter. Mr. Carpenter, how are you doing this morning, buddy? I am. I'm doing as good as I can, given that I'm still me. <laughs> well, you know, our, our listeners can't can't see your, your beautiful face, but that beard is getting epic, man. You, you've grown it out for uh, November, Movember, whatever no, the hell you call it. Nothing, nothing altruistic. I'm just trying to hide my feelings. Okay, wonderful. So eat more, your face can get fluffy, and your beard will hide it. That's what I do. Yes. <laughs> well, awesome. Cool. So the goal of the show today is to talk about composable infrastructure and then a recently emerged startup focused on making a private cloud for big data with commodity hardware, um, a little bit of um, proprietary, I think somewhat proprietary hardware, and then some software magic. So with us today, we have Tom Lyon, the chief scientist and founder of DriveScale. Tom, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing today? Doing wonderful. It is. Uh, it's a beautiful early morning here in Arizona, and uh, I gotta say, man, the weather is wonderful. But I think you're in Cali, right, Tom? Right. It's, oh, it's always a wonderful. Bit of a, having a bit of a cold snap here. Yeah. <laughs> what is it like? Fifty-five? Uh, it's like forty this morning. Oh. Okay. Nice. And Brian, you are. Where are you today, bud? In Texas, as usual. Well, not as usual, hey, but I'm for, in Texas, a different part. But I'm in Texas. Awesome. Well, the, the magic of Skype is bringing us together. So, Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, man? You have a, a long pedigree. You have been in the industry for quite some time. You have practically created products and, and, and things that all of our listeners either know or use uh, or have used in the past. So so talk to us about that past. Okay. Well, the I guess the first thing to know about me is I've been messing with computers for a very long time. I actually got started when I was in sixth grade in 1967, and uh, it's all been uh, total geek geekdom since then. I've actually never had a job other than computer-related stuff, including, yeah. uh, and I started jobs in high school. So uh, I had the good luck to get in with Unix very early on. So I have over 40 years of experience there. Um, and I had the good luck to become employee number eight at Sun Microsystems, which was a hell of a ride. Yeah, I bet. Um, I got to contribute to technologies that people know and, and love and or hate today, like, like NFS. <laughs> are, you um, the, are you the one who put the, um, the install uh, a random application when I get Java into uh, Java? Is that your fault as well? No, Java was pretty much after my time, so <laughs> can't blame me for that one. So, uh, you know, as you were working with Sun um, and you were brought on as employee number eight, um, what, were you, what were you focused on initially besides maybe getting people coffee or anything else? Uh, I was a kernel guy, so I had... A lot of experience with uh, drivers, and so I did a countless number of drivers for Sun, various other kernel hacks, and then drifted into more of a pure networking role. And and how do you feel about kind of uh, the growth of your baby, right? So you worked on it for a while, like twelve years, uh, and then yeah. you know you give something like the kernel up, right? The you know the literally the, the center of the universe as far as that's concerned, and and let it go. How do, how has it evolved in your opinion? Has it gone where you thought it should go? Did it, you know? Would you have taken it in the same places, or are, are you happy with its growth without you? Well, well, it's funny. I, I was never one of the kind of people to 
want to hang on to the core, the center of the universe. I'm more interested in what's happening at the fringe in terms of growth. Um, so I did a lot with SunOS. By the time Solaris came along, I, I no longer had anything to do with the kernel, but I was off doing all kinds of networking stuff. Cool. So after that, you know, we, ha- we see a couple other things where you're at uh, Ypsilon Networks and Nokia and uh, it was Natillion. Um, and those are all really cool stuff like memory over network. So I'm curious. So Natillion doing memory over network, we see a lot of conversations today around uh, NVMe and all sorts of other, you know, shared RDMA type experiences for network. Um, what, where did Natillion go and where are you seeing that kind of technology evolve and and frankly, is that impacting what you're doing today? Well, what Natalia was doing was pretty much exactly what ScaleMP has done. And actually, they got started a little bit before we did. Um, and we didn't learn about them until later. But basically, we, we had symmetric multiprocessing over Ethernet. And uh, we bet big on 10 gigabit Ethernet. And unfortunately, that took a much longer to come around than, than we thought it would. So, uh, I mean, that sounds like a lot of fun. Is what is? Um, do you see scale MP? I mean, are people still using that in the market today? Yeah, it's it's struggled um, because you know if if, if the uh, performance of an individual server would ever stop increasing, then they would have a better better market niche. So you but, need uh, you, that, that hasn't stopped. You need Moore's law to kind of sort of stop here soon. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, yeah. there's been articles that said that it uh, is slowing down. So maybe that'll that'll happen. Um, so as, <clears> yeah, as we got a ways to go. Yeah, and then of course your your most your most recent past before what we're talking about today um, is of course a lot of fun. Um, you were a distinguished engineer at Cisco after being chief scientist at, uh, hopefully I'm saying it right, Nova, no, Nuova maybe systems? Nuova uh, that, systems. That was acquired by Cisco. And, you know, kind of, I, I'm really curious about the whole basis and how it's involved in UCS and Nexus, because uh, I was a customer of both of those back when I was a customer. Well, uh, Nuova systems got started basically looking at the problem of how, how can you optimize the interface between the network and the servers, um, because that that boundary has been a very traditional boundary, and yet leads to various inefficiencies. Um, and so we did a lot with 10 gig Ethernet switches. We built a whole the whole Nexus 5000 series, and then we did a lot with the UCS servers, which had a, a number of innovative ways of bringing the network closer to the server. And uh, that's been a killer product line for Cisco. They're still, uh, the most recent numbers show that they're still growing their server business, whereas everyone else's is pretty much shrinking. Yeah, it's, it's definitely taken off uh, like a rocket ship. And, you know, we see it all over the place. Um, absolutely. So uh, before we dive into DriveScale, Tom, we do a segment called This Week in Tech History, and uh, we're going to keep with that. So this week on the 1st of November in 1999, the domain name business.com sells for $7.5 million. And at that time in 1999, it was the most expensive domain name sold in history, which I thought was pretty interesting. So I did a little bit more research. And uh, I'm not going to do stuff to chomp with with you, but um, I, the top four are insurance.com for 35 million, vacationrentals.com for another 35 million, 
privatejet.com for 30 million and internet.com for 18 million. So is do, do you know are there businesses out there Brian this question's for you too man. Are there businesses out there that purely just make names up, get the domains and then hope that they can later on sell them? Ab- you know, absolutely uh, yeah, absolutely there are and uh, sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you uh, Tom, but you actually Brent you you accidentally created a this week in tech history that hits me right at home too. Um, my job before Dell EMC was working at the third largest auction house in the world. And uh, right as I was leaving, we had literally acquired a domain names auction business. Uh, and so huh. we just started doing that stuff. Uh, and matter of fact, uh, I was involved with the transaction where we bought HA.com. And it was uh, relatively significant, and it was a lot of fun to do. So, yeah, the, the domain name business, people who got a two-letter domain name um, were really, you know, you see things like h-d.com for Harley-Davidson and ha.com for Heritage Auctions. Uh, a lot of really cool stuff came out of that. So, um, you know, Tom, you know, back, you know, it was being part of, you know, Unix and kind of, you know, at the early days, I'm sure you saw a lot of these things. Were you a... Were you a prospector in domain names? Did you have any friends who did that, or you know, because that used to be kind of the thing back in the day? Yeah, I don't have. I wasn't too excited about that because you know, the ultimately, yeah, nobody looks at the, the domain name anymore. You just click on whatever you find in the search engine. <laughs> um, and uh, what's interesting to me now is how how valuable IP addresses are compared to domain names, because IPv4 has been exhausted. So those things are trading, but you never hear about it in the press for, for huh. huge amounts of money. Wow. That Very is a, cool. Yeah, that's actually something that we were dealing with as well recently because uh, we were trying to get IPv6 set up at home, which has you know, been this, just like you talked about 10 gig Ethernet, taking a while to actually get established. I mean, we've been talking about the fact that IPv6 is going to solve all these problems. Uh, but it's really only standard in the core, and there's very little use of it uh, in the actual edge where the you know where the where all the numbers are at. So, are you seeing kind of the same thing from your perspective? Oh yeah, no, nobody's had the the balls to uh, say, hey, we're going to do build a bunch of IPv6 only stuff, and that's what it's going to take. When I was at Nokia, um, I was on the CTO council at Nokia. This is back at at their peak around 2000 and we did a big push to get them to include IPv6 in all the 3G mobile da- data but we couldn't make it, get them over the hump to do IPv6 only and it would have been easy because everyone was doing address translation anyway to get out of the mobile network yeah it's uh, that's kind of what we see is it's uh, somebody's afraid you know what's going to happen is just like the headphones in your iPhone and uh, CD drives and things like that. Somebody's going to force the standard, um, and they're hopefully going to pave the way. But as of yet, there has not been somebody who's dominant enough to force the standard, which is kind of really the issue in this in this shared world. Is somebody's got to st- step up and say, "I'm going to lead," and uh, everybody else will then quickly follow and probably, uh, you know, hopefully, qu- hopefully quickly. Uh, as far as well, if you don't give an IP address, to everything. How are you going to have botnet attacks going on? Yeah. Right, so let's right. uh, let's. I mean, you know, speaking of botnet attacks, um, let's attack the subject of the day here, Brent. We're, <laughs> um, so um, you what know, a segue. What it, a segue. It's a, a two-person a two-person podcast of attack on um, you know really this whole thing around what you're doing at DriveScale. So. You, uh, you're a chief scientist and founder of DriveScale. Um, really cool title, the chief scientist part. Um, I'll never be <laughs> chief of anything. But um, 
when as far as drive scale is concerned, you obviously sat somewhere and said, there is a problem, I'm going to solve it. And I, you know, is that something you did with a co-founder? Is this all kind of your baby? Tell us about how DriveScale started and what the impetus was. Okay, so uh, I do have a co-founder. It's, he's uh, Satya Nishtala. And he, he also worked with, with me at Sun and at Ventillion and at Cisco, Nuova. Um, he was actually the, the main hardware architect for all of the Cisco UCS servers. And so uh, I had actually retired for the second time uh, after spending five years with Nuova and Cisco. And, but then he started talking to me about what was going on in the scale-out space with big data and other technologies. And uh, you know, Cisco had put a lot of effort into fiber channel, fiber channel over Ethernet, and, and various types of things, converging the storage on the network. And what was happening in the scale-out world is people were throwing throwing away SANS and NAS and all because it just was no longer affordable or performant. And they were going back to direct attached storage for everything. And, okay. so, and yeah. so, go ahead. So, so this was a huge, this continues to be a huge sea change in the industry um, combined with the fact that storage systems themselves are looking more and more like ordinary servers all the time. And, and so the, the, the traditional storage systems are just dying left and right. And yet the, the servers with DAS are actually seem like a pretty crappy way to build servers. Because basically you're, it's just hard. You know, there's so many inefficiencies that come from trying to make both hard drives and CPUs happy in the same box. And you end up throwing away one when, when the other is perfectly good. Things like that. Cool. So, yeah, that, I mean, it kind of gives us the high level. We definitely want to dig into uh, the technology, how, and, and this kind of thing. But first, I want to understand um, kind of like how, how this came to be. Like, you guys were in stealth for a while, and then you, you emerged recently. So talk to us about that the kind of startup process, how long you've been in, in stealth, when you came out, and, um, you know, who's backing you? Well, we started talking way back in the middle of 2012, it took a good six or eight months of talking before we said, yeah, we're, we're going to do this, let's incorporate. And that's ha that happened in March of 2013. It then took nearly another year of, you know, investigating and refining all the ideas before we actually hired, hired anyone else. And so we were operating on, on our own budget at that point. Um, when that came along, we hired our, our third co-founder, Dwayne Northcutt, and he brought along a, a team of engineers, and then we found a CEO at the same time. Then we, all of us had worked together at Sun, so it's kind of a big, big happy Sun family. Um, then we rounded up some seed, seed money from friends and family, but at the same time, uh, we got a relationship going with Foxconn, who are the world's largest manufacturer of everything and they participate in our seed round so they were they're a a great strategic partner for us and then it took a good uh what's that yeah pretty much two years before we announced the product we we had an alpha after one year but there was still so much to do to re, to refine the product that it, that it took a while to get out but now we're 
since May, we've announced the company and the product, and we're plugging away at, at landing customers. Yeah, absolutely. So I see you guys got roughly $18 million in funding thus far. Foxconn, like you said, is right. one of those contributors. And, and um, I think I read this correctly, but uh, Foxconn does make some hardware for you guys as well, right? That's right. It's our own design, but they, they pretty much did all the hard work uh, making it work. I remember okay. one time uh, we gave them a block diagram of what we wanted. They came back about three days later with detailed 3D drawings and thermal analysis. And they, they just rock, and they have all the best tools to, to do this stuff. So it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. And then, so uh, employees today, what are, you guys, what are you guys sitting at? We're at about 22 employees right now. And what's so, the majority of the, the like the makeup? Are are they developers or en- engineering, like hardware engineers? It, it, it's half engineers and half the rest of the company. Um, Satya is actually our only hardware engineer, so it, it's very much a software company. The hardware we view as a enabler that we had to build because no one else had something like it. Yeah. So can you explain that specifically? Um, you said that you you thought that the um, the commodity server and that was just not the right way of doing this kind of st- scaling out of storage. So you had to have an engineered solution that solved the problem. What exact problem are you solving and how, how are you solving that with hardware? Like what, are you, what exactly are you trying to do? Well, the, the problem we're solving is the, the inflexibility of having CPUs and, and disks in the same box. And this is bad for so many different reasons but but it but it's like and 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 well and that's coupled with the fact that these new scale out systems really can't handle being virtualized so the hypervisor overhead is too high you can't you can't afford sans or nas so these basic tools that you had in managing your data center with virtualization and sans are not there anymore for scale out type products and so we wanted to bring those tools back in a way that's appropriate for scale out. Now to do this, we really wanted to separate the, the storage from the server in a way that, that's very simple. So, so what our hardware does is simply a bridge between Ethernet and SaaS. SaaS being serial SCSI that's, that's used on industry standard JBODs. And we're, we're talking about JBODs that have no processing at all in them, just a box of disks. So it's very, it, it, you can think of it as kind of a, a new age SAN, but unlike other SANs, we have no services in the storage side of things. It's just disks. There's no RAID, there's no LUNs, uh, there's no fancy stuff. That, that all happens in the main server processors. And is that done by uh, at that point? Is the aggregation of the of the raw disk done by um, something that DriveScale is doing, or is that now something that the um, the software defined you know experience, whether it's some sort of you know analytics player or whatever, is bringing its own you know it's then gathering up those disks you've presented in a unique way? How is that how is that managed? Right. right. So we assume that the next layer up from us is a scale out system like. Hadoop's HDFS or Ceph or Gluster or any of these new scale-out type storage systems where they are totally prepared to deal with individual hard drives and replicating data across the network 
in all those things. So there's just no need to do that anymore at, at a low level. And so one of the things that we've seen is that, um, uh, you know, from our reading, is that DriveScale really changed the way the disk is connected to the uh, CPU. You know, you mentioned having them connected together was really not the goal. So you it removed it into a JBot experience, but then you still want to present them back in some form or fashion. Um, right. So, so what, are you, what, are you, yeah, what are you using to connect them together again? Well, it, essentially what our box does is make it look like every disk is individually attached to the Ethernet. So they become individually addressable. Under the covers, we're using iSCSI for everything. But because we manage both ends of the connection, the user never has to worry about how to configure iSCSI. And people think of us as kind of a storage solution, but in fact, most of our work goes on on the server side in trying to make all this stuff totally transparent to the, to the administrators and software running on the server. So we use iSCSI, we use multipathing, we have our own lo load balancing daemon, and uh, it's just a lot of work to make it look like those disks are actually physically attached when they're not. Yeah, it's, uh, that's really interesting. So, you know, as we, as we go through this, right, and you, you've created this um, storage system, there's other, there's other storage systems that I see that, you know, obviously remind me of it. Um, so w one of the first things, though, that's kind of I'm remembering is uh, certainly at Sun, you probably knew Andy Bechtelstein, right? Right, and it, I'm curious if you uh, followed, you know, the act when he actually built a storage type appliance recently, talking about you know solving different types of problems like you know high performance connectivity. Were you aware of what he was doing with DSSD? I mean, there, it seems like similar timing. Um, oh yeah, yeah ab absolutely, and, and there are also a bunch of X Sun guys, um, but they're they're going after a very different product space you know they're doing super high performance high reliability flash subsystem um and it's it's just very much not related to the new scale out world right sure um, it's just it's more like this is this is for your oracle database on steroids and so as you as you go to customers i was just curious about that and what about like when you see other people like um I believe it was CoRaid that did essentially SaaS over uh, Ethernet, I believe it was. Um, were you familiar with what they had done? Are there, are there functional things that they had chosen that just didn't seem to make sense as, you, as you've done your research? Well, yeah, let's, let's get into that. So we needed to have the drives on Ethernet, so CoRaid was one way to do that. Um, unfortunately, they weren't very open with their implementation. They didn't really allow other target vendors to do their thing. Um, so it wasn't really an industry standard. Um, but also, you know, that they kind of stopped once they had their drives on Ethernet. They thought that was cool. But what, that's like the starting point for us. And our real value is in what we can do with a whole cluster once, once you can control the nature of how the drives and servers are attached. So our unit of management is a cluster. It's not a drive or a server or a JBOD. We manage an entire Hadoop cluster, and we can grow it and shrink it, move resources between different clusters. And that separation of drive and server is like a virtualization technology 
And that virtualization technology allows us now to do for an entire cluster the kinds of things that VMware did for a server in terms of consolidating clusters, creating clusters on the fly, moving resources between clusters. That's that's really our big value. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I watched some videos. You were just on Tech Field Days. Actually, your whole crew was. And so I kind of dove into those. And it was interesting. Uh, one of the things that you that you said in there was, you hate RDMA. Talk to us about that statement <laughs> and, and why you hate it. Oh, RDMA has been a solution looking for a problem for many, many years. If you go Googling, you can you can find a wonderful press release from Microsoft, I think from 1996, talking about how RDMA is the answer to all their problems. But it's just never been a big enough uh, advantage for people to invest in, in what it takes. And uh, I predict NVMe over Fabrics is going to suffer because of that as well. Uh, NVMe over Fabrics <clears throat> requires RDMA, and yet there are no software implementations of RDMA for servers. There's a few prototypes, but they've never been productized. And so how do you, how do you get the vast numbers of servers to start using NVMe over Fabrics? It's always going to be some server upgrade to an RDMA-capable NIC. Intel still has no RDMA-capable NICs, and they have the vast majority of the market share. So it just seems like a big non-starter. <laughs> well, and, you know, I think you you went on to say too, like you know, the networks have gotten so fast anyway. Like you know, ten gig is wonderful, hundred gig is out. It's just expensive, but um, you know, the, the pipe is not going to necessarily be the problem. Um, right. And so, so you know, I, I guess I definitely appreciate yeah, and understand your approach. Yeah, like eight years ago at at Cisco Nova, we could show uh, TCP doing ten gigabits on a single core. Right now, you can buy a two-socket system with 40 cores. <laughs> Keeping up with 100 gig is not really a problem for for I/O intensive things. Sure, sure. So, talk to us then. Uh, we've we've talked about the the software component uh, a little bit, and we'll we'll still continue to dive into that. Um, and then you provide the, this hardware appliance as well, right? right. Uh, I think you call it your your well, it's just called the drive scale appliance. So. First, yeah, the, let's talk the, about the drive scale called the adapter. Yeah. Oh, the adapter. Okay, yeah. Talk right. to us about the drive scale adapter and and what specifically that does. I think you've you've kind of touched on it, but exactly how how do you articulate that to a customer? Well, essentially, it's a a switch extender. It's a way to get SaaS ports on your in rack Ethernet switch. And so the the bandwidth for moving disk data around between the disks and the servers that bandwidth comes from the Ethernet switch. It's really, our, our adapter merely turns Ethernet into SaaS. And it's not, not really an appliance in the traditional sense at all, because this is not x86 based. It's not just software on a stick, as they used to say. Um, it's actually based on a network processor. We can do 80 gigabits of throughput in a single 1U box uh, at very low power and very low cost. Our list price for the box is $6,000. And so to get 80 gigabits of throughput from a tr traditional SAN device would be a half a million bucks easy because it's doing all this crazy SAN stuff. So it's a just completely different price performance point. 
yeah, it was interesting. So six thousand bucks um, for the for the box, and your your are you, that's what your your list price is, or your street price is to the customers, or you're just that's saying what, that that is what you buy it for before you package it up. That's our list price to the customers. Okay. Wow. And uh, the price will go down as we get into volume. So that's it's really a very simple design. Also completely redundant, highly reliable. So all the good things you need from, from serious networking and storage equipment. So you sell that component. You sell, it looks like, um, you know, for redundancy, you sell two. Um, so no, the, 12, the, redundancy, the redundancy is built in, so you don't need to. Okay. Built in. Awesome. So 6,000 bucks customer brings their own JBOD servers. Uh, what, what, what does a customer bring or what can you sell them, uh, in addition to, the, the the appliance. So the customer brings the the switch and the servers and the JBODs. Because we're taking the storage out of the servers, the customer gets a much broader choice of what servers to use, including very high density servers. Um, actually, it's worth pointing out we're now in the Dell partner program and we're working on reference architecture with Dell. So the Dell switches, Dell servers, uh, specifically the FX2 where you can get four or eight servers in a single 2U box. Um, and then the Dell JBODs, it makes a wonderful solution. And the amount of rack space you need goes down by almost 50% from uh, the normal scale-out approach. Well, cool. That's a little nugget that I don't think neither Brian nor I had an idea about. So I guess this will actually be beneficial to uh, yeah. the listeners that, that work at Dell EMC. Okay, cool. What's the what's the status of that? Um, it's it's uh, a done deal, and uh, Dell has introduced us to a number of customers, and we're just having a, a rocking good relationship. Okay, <laughs> and so that, that that kind of drives one of my questions, right? Um, what we've read from you is that a lot of this focus is on um, what has been determined as big data. Is that is that intended to say this is for analytic data sets or just people who have a lot of data that need to kind of want to get efficiencies out of it or performance efficiencies or whatever, or is it really truly focused on, like you said, the Hadoops and the Cassandras and the things that bring their resiliency from a software perspective? Right now, there are sales and marketing efforts are focused on in the Hadoop world because that's what we see as the, well, one of the biggest consumers of hard drives right now in, in this scale out fashion. And so they're the guys with the biggest pain. And uh, people who have Hadoop clusters of 100 nodes or so have figured out that it's very inconvenient to, to keep buying hardware the old way. And so they're very interested in talking to us. The, so, other, go ahead. the other big market that's similar is object storage. But that's a much more fragmented market uh, with with many, many more vendors and hard to figure out who to partner with. And is that the idea of building your own object store on a cost-efficient platform, or are you providing object services out of the, uh, the DriveScale appliance? No, again, we would, we would work with anybody's object storage software. Okay. And, for instance, Dell's got your, you've got uh, EMC has the ECS, right? So that software product could be layered on top of our, our product. Okay, cool. Hmm. Uh, you you researched this more than uh, more more than you had to. Um, so uh, 
it, the other thing is, uh, you know, to me, as I read about this and you talk about these sets and people who are trying to solve problems, um, HPC really seems to pop up, right? Like this high-performance compute type things. Is there right. is that a, a current application for you, or is that like <clears throat> next on your list of things to attack after you've established your market further, or, or where, where are you at with HPC? It's uh, it's on our list. I don't know if it's next on our list. Um, most of that HPC storage world is going towards ZFS-based solutions. Unfortunately, ZFS is not really a scale-out technology, so it's not quite what we had in mind. On the other hand, we're, our buddies at Foxconn are working on building a, an HPC system for the National University in Taiwan, and we're involved with that, that build-out. Uh, the, the CEO of Foxconn personally gave something like $100 million to the university to, to build this HPC system. So one of the things that, that I found interesting going through the, the cult architecture, if you will, um, was, you know, your focus on Hadoop and, and the ability to scale up and scale down environments, right? You talked about, you know, HDFS versus uh, HBase and some other components and, you know, necessarily you don't want them maybe in the same cluster. Um, and so you kind of, you can segregate these workloads out and you can scale up and down. Um, these environments with regards to the data and, you know, uh, uh, storing of data and data locality, when you're scaling up and scaling down, say, uh, storage node resources, how is that data being shuffled around or is it at all? How do you, how do you, uh, manage that? Or are you relying on like something like the file system to, to take care of that? Okay. So, most of these scale-out systems, and, and Hadoop, HDFS in particular, don't really care what server the storage is on, as long as the storage is somewhere in the cluster. And so what we can do is we can take hard drives from one data node, basically, and put them on other data nodes in, in the same rack through, through this you know, ability to switch on Ethernet. And this means we can scale up and down the number of data nodes without changing the number of disks. And so you can free up servers for use in, in other clusters. Um, to ch actually change the number of disks, you simply take away a disk from, from a cluster, and it knows, oh, that data went away. I have to recover it from my other copies on the cluster. And so that's a slow process, but it's still a lot faster than you know, manually rewiring things. Okay, so it's a software instantiation. Like I think we we've kind of defined that, right? Um, but it's giving you flexibility from a from a GUI, CLI, API. How do you interact with uh, with the product? Um, we have a GUI, um, but it uses our API. So everything is is a, you know everything you can do is through a, a normal REST looking API, and we expect that to be really the the principal. Uh, technique. We're working on uh, some really cool integration with Cloudera so that it becomes much, much easier just to fire up an entire Cloudera uh, Hadoop cluster because they, they have a good API, we have a good API, and it's amazing what you can do. So why Cloudera over Hortonworks? 
Um, they're just the biggest. Yeah, we're we're working on Hortonworks too, but Cloudera is first. Sure. Okay. And then uh, a question regarding you know we're seeing this movement towards hyperconvergence and hyperconverged infrastructure. Would you consider DriveScale and the way that it's approaching um, aggregating you know, all these all these uh, CPU and, and memory and, and uh, storage resources a hyperconverged uh, offering? Or if not, what's the differentiation? Well, there's two, two ways to think about hyperconverged. One, from a purely technical point of view, is that you're converging all this stuff because it no longer makes sense to waste processors on just doing storage. Right, so you can have the same processor doing compute and storage. It's hyperconverged. And if, in that sense, we're totally, totally in line with hyperconvergence. The other way to look at hyperconvergence is it's all about being one box, so it's really easy to buy and install. And that's not what we're about. We're, we're providing an architecture so that our customers and integrators can choose the best solution. We're not providing the prepackaged solution. Yeah. So, um, if I if I if I understand this correctly, as I as we look through the diagrams, um, from just a uh, people's mental standpoint, as you try to, it's always fun to try to get a, a mental picture out of a out of audio. So we're going to play that game right now. Um, right. We have uh, a a big group of JBODs um, that you've purchased from your uh, your vendor of choice, and you all and you have disks and whatever else you might be trying to do there, uh, and then you have your group of servers, which are probably at this point, if you've decided this architecture, are diskless. Is that correct? Yeah, so two points there. First, uh, we didn't really talk about this, but it's, it's a rack scale architecture. Okay. If you try to move the disks too far away from the servers, you get phenomenal number of network bottlenecks. Okay. So, uh, and, and it's, it's defined by the essentially the capacity of the top of rack switch. Exactly. Okay. And and since it, most most people uh, have an overbooking of you know four to one or or even more between the bandwidth in the rack and the bandwidth going out of the rack, so essentially the rest of that bandwidth is available for in rack use by what we're doing. Okay, and is there um, have people implemented this in a in like a well designed spine and leaf architecture, especially with with things like Nexus uh, or even Dell networking? where you could actually do multi-rack and connect them all together? Um, is that also part of the principles? Um, in theory. Um, but that that local bandwidth at at the rack level is going to remain a lot cheaper um, just because it's so easy to get more ports on, on the top of rack switch and more ports in the server. And, uh, yeah, people today are very proud if they could get 10 gigabit non-blocking between servers in the data center. But we're coming in saying, no, you ought to start with two 10 gig ports and go up from there. So so the beauty of what we do is that we, we have no impact whatsoever on the traffic going out of the rack. So you don't have to really get your network guy involved in the conversation. Okay. So uh, from a rack scale perspective, let's say you, you've got half of it full of your, uh, your choice of JBOD. Um, you're going to put your uh, drive scale. Um, it wasn't appliance. It was what was the other word? Adapter. Adapter. Your drive scale adapter, and then that's between that and basically some diskless servers. 
and then your top of rack switch at the top. And that's the general, the architecture. And then as you scale that out horizontally in the data center, you basically rinse and repeat that over and over and over again. Is that how, is that kind of the design? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And uh, the, the servers don't actually have to be really diskless. Uh, they're just disk light. Okay. Because uh, it's so easy to get a small, you know, USB or SD boot device in a server that most people are going to stick with that. Okay. Uh, cool. Um, the, the other thing, the other thing to point out is, you can install our solution into existing clusters because one cluster of the rack you could have the, the old way, and another cluster you could have the new way. And at the at the cluster software level, it's happy. It doesn't care which way which way you do it. Okay. Uh, and we've seen also in your application that um, it's you know it's SaaS and it appears to be most of the the conversation has been around uh, spinning media. Is there a reason why there is uh, you're not using uh, Flash, or is that simply a price conversation for the for the customer to decide, or is there bandwidth concerns, or what what's uh, what's your answers there? It's primarily a bandwidth concern. So you could put small amounts of Flash in, into your JBODs. And that would work fine. Um, but if you want to do a, a truly flash-intensive solution, you're going to need a lot more bandwidth than, than 10, 10 gigabit. And our our 80 gigabit box is kind of at the very low end of what, what you want for flash. So we're not going to do flash until we have a much higher performance adapter and can, can offer the whole range of solutions. And is that a short-term plan for you, or is that kind of a long-term as the market establishes itself? kind of choice it's kind of a next year thing okay cool well next year is only a month away so we're excited for that right <laughs> december 87th <laughs> well question for you then tom um regarding again these 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 drive scale adapters six thousand bucks a pop you got one per rack um how it, else are you guys making it actually money? works out usually works out to about one per jbod but it, it basically, you know, ah. you decide how much bandwidth you want you want out of your disks and allocate it that way. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so is that your only uh, uh, way of making revenue, or do you have some other maybe services or um, offerings? Our, our principal revenue is in the software to to manage all this stuff. So it's a it's a recurring license fee um, based on number of servers and number of hard drives. Okay, gotcha. So, uh, software as a service type of thing, or is it um, an application that you would you know, deploy on premises? It's a it's a traditional product. We do we also have a software as a service component on the web, uh, but that's kind of nascent right now. It's mostly about downloading and keeping track of your your uh, software. Sure. Now <clears throat> we've we've talked a lot about this being focused in the Hadoop big data world. What about traditional applications or even cloud native type applications? Is there any reason that you couldn't run them uh, on, you know, on a rack scale, drive scale, um, you know, architecture? Um, no, we we for instance could pretty easy, right right now we only support Linux on the server side, but we could easily, you know, fire up KVM and support traditional virtual environments on the servers using our, our technology. But in the traditional virtual world, you already have hundreds, if not thousands, of SAN and NAS type vendors competing, and we, you know, it just doesn't need our solution as much in, in that category. Um, where 
where we do see a huge opportunity is with containers and the whole way that container storage is being managed. Everyone is aware that it's, it's a huge pain, pain right now to deal with local storage and containers because containers are all about mobility. If the storage is in the server, the storage is not mobile. Yep. Yeah, earlier you mentioned uh, Co-RAID and, and how it was not open, and, and you know that was, that was an issue. Um, and it was definitely not, it was not a standard either. So do you guys have, have goals to uh, take DriveScale and, and make it open or you know, approach something a bit more standards-based? Well, we're we're totally layered on standards. You know, it's it's bog standard iSCSI underneath it all. Um, but in terms of open sourcing our own stuff, we don't really have a plan. There's a lot of moving parts, and you know, there's the hardware component. So having the software without the hardware probably doesn't do you much good. Um, so it, it's just a a difficult thing, and, and quite frankly, for the market we're going after, which is enterprise. We have yet to have a customer indicate that they care. Cool. So, uh, from a uh, from a futures perspective, um, you talked a little bit about you know 2017 and beyond. What what's what's hot for you guys internally that you're you're either debating about putting uh, putting out, or maybe you have got some features that you want to that you're going to drop pretty soon um, that you're able to tell us about. Well, our our uh, the thrust of our you know, positioning and thought is around being a complete private cloud solution. However, one that's optimized towards the new kind of scale-out applications. So things that, that don't really fit the virtualized environment very well. Are, are there anything like, um, I mean, again, when we you compare to kind of where, where Andy went with his product and the speed and the expectations, um, are there use cases like... Um, uh, you know, real-time analytics or other things inside of big data where uh, this makes the most sense? I mean, when you see something like Hadoop and it's unstructured, there's so many different ways you can go with it. Uh, and there's so many different, you know, kind of response expectations. You may have a lot of data that you just need to be able to get in one place cost efficiently and analyze it. Or you may have a little bit of data you want to get out really fast and you could still use the same, you know, Hadoop experience to get, all, get those two outcomes. So are you more well, focused things, on one type of outcome versus the other? Uh, not really. I mean, our, our current product is oriented towards hard drives, which in turn um, implies more of a batch environment than an interactive environment. However, technologies like Spark can span you know, both kinds of environments very well. And our next generation products will be able to support Flash and, and, and go into the most demanding performance environments. And if if NV, NVMe over fabrics comes around soon enough, then we'll be able to manage that kind of hardware without the need for our own adapter at all. Yeah, absolutely. So you know we've we've talked a lot about uh, you know the the why the use cases uh, specifically around you know big data, Hadoop style workloads, um, but this can be utilized for. You know, I mean, really anything. You talked about hypervisor-based approach, container-based approach. So what's the most unique thing that you've seen a customer do with it so far um, that you probably, it, it maybe it boggled your mind or you never even thought of thought of it? Um, probably the, 
the most interesting are the customers who are fed up with the the cloud. So there's a lot of people who, who are doing Hadoop in the cloud and yet discover that they can't get any kind of performance predictability. And so we have a couple of customers who are saying, you know, I love the convenience and flexibility of the cloud, but I got to control, I got to control, you know, what's important to me. And, and they love that we can bring some of that flexibility of the cloud to, to the way they build their own, their own data data centers. Sure. Yeah. You know, I've got customers that uh, are and have run Hadoop in, in AWS, for instance, and that is, yeah. was an expensive endeavor for them. So, yeah, um, so very so, cool. So this whole area, this whole area of people falling out of the cloud, is kind of a new, a new thing that's really <laughs> resonating. I think it's, that's the title, man. Falling out of the cloud with drive scale. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's raining customers. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know, it, it, are you when you see customers, um, you know, who actually are like, ah, oh, yeah, this makes perfect sense to me. Is uh, that is that customer a like a traditional enterprise customer? Do you get a lot of um, you know things like sciences, like you know people doing DNA sequencing? Like where do you where do you kind of see the common customer set? Are you you know you got a bunch of federal people calling you going I got I got I got a bunch of emails I got to read through pretty quick. Uh, where, where do you see these customer use cases? Well, right now, yeah, because we're a tiny startup, it's really the the bleeding edge customers that that talk to us. And in our market, the bleeding edge guys are the guys whose entire revenue is determined by how well their Hadoop cluster is operating. And so ad tech firms, right, they have to do analyses typically every night to figure out how to, how to place ads the next day. Um, medical healthcare analytics is a big one for us. Um, another really interesting segment is uh, automobile vendors who are now starting to gather every piece of data they possibly can to inform uh, you know, driver, the driverless future. So uh, lots of interesting stuff going on. Yeah, I actually love to tell a story about that because uh, we remember all the stuff that uh, where Toyota was getting sued by people saying, hey, my accelerator got stuck. And you know, right. a lot of times they were like, no, it didn't. You're just a really bad driver. Um, and, you know, now, but it's it's incumbent upon them to be able to prove that. So clearly in somewhat silence, they um, put in a bunch of sensors and are watching everything. And so uh, the other day I had to go get my car fixed and they were like, I was like, this one problem's happening. And they said, okay, whenever it happens, uh, you know, blink your lights five times or tap your brakes five times. And I was like, I feel like you're making fun of me, but okay. Control, and, uh, I'll delete. Yeah, and uh, and so I uh, I did it, and I went back to the dealership, and somebody hopped in there with basically a USB dongle, got in, and downloaded all of my sensor data that had been there for like roughly sixty days, just in the car, and then they sent it somewhere for analysis, and we got the response back in like a day with a firmware patch for my problem, and. I realized a couple of things. First of all, they put all that in probably just to keep themselves from being sued, but now they're using it for other mechanisms such as troubleshooting and, and vehicle improvement and all those kind of things. But also they now know that I never use my right and left blinker, uh, and therefore they can tell my insurance company I'm a bad driver. So there's all these really cool things that are happening that literally the, the impetus was, please stop suing me, and the outcome was I'm going to get charged more on my insurance eventually. So, kind of. Yeah. Well, the, well, well, the joke here in Silicon Valley is 
the way you can tell when the Tesla is on autopilot is if the turn signals are working. <laughs> That's great. I love that. Did you hear that, Fred Nix? Okay. So, um, well, I mean, you know, we've had a lot of fun. Is there, you know, we, Brent and I have asked you a bunch of questions. We kind of like to interrogate you a bit like we're a customer ready to consume something, and we want you to convince us of what this technology is, why you really have a unique point of view towards solving a problem. Um, ha- have we not asked questions that a, a well-educated or a customer who's interested in finding out what this is all about? Is there something we didn't ask you about? Well, the first thing, the first thing that uh, happens in our customer engagements is they ask us about the performance of our solution. And really what we promise is performance transparency with local attached disks. And so that, that's a big part of getting, getting customers to believe that is always an interesting challenge and typically requires, you know, POC. Fortunately, we, we actually have systems set up at the Dell Solution Center now where we can easily show, show off the solution. Um, so, yeah, been, there's been a lot of emphasis on the performance. So when I say we can do 80 gigabits of throughput through our little box, that's a continuous 80 gig. And so it's very easy to map. You decide how much bandwidth you want per drive and allocate boxes appropriately. Is there anything else that they, uh, they you know, challenge you about? Is there, um, are there things that they go, nope, you know, there's always that, that great architect in a room that has solved this problem before and it just can't, can't believe it. You know, it's breaking the laws right. of physics. Right. Well, there's... There's two things. Uh, one is I, we, we think our main competitor is the status quo of just continuing to buy, buy the servers with the disks built in. And, uh, you know, if, if you have a smaller, a smaller installation, maybe, maybe you're not really keen. It, maybe it's not a big problem for you. Secondly, there's a whole bunch of vendors, like every every traditional storage vendor says they can also support Hadoop with their solution. And so there's a huge number of vendors saying, Hey, just separate compute and storage like you did with your virtual machines and everything will be fine. But that just breaks down terribly in terms of performance, because when you're doing big large scale analytics, you want to be able to read from every hard drive full blast all the time. And just, there just aren't any of the traditional storage systems that are built for that. Well, that's awesome. Uh, well, you know, I think I think we've uh, exhausted our questions. I think we've uh, interrogated you appropriately, and uh, I'm feeling that this is a, a very um, coffee bean led experience. So um, we had a lot of fun. Um, so you know, are you are y'all out there at conferences? You know, whether it's some sort of like um, you know disruption conference or other things. Where where are you? Where can people come find you and really dig in more into uh, what y'all are doing? Um, we're going to the Hadoop conferences right now in terms of having having an actual booth and presence. Uh, also to some vendor conferences like Dell, Dell World just a few months ago was very nice for us. Um, so, but again, we're still a small startup, so we're not we're not spending profligately on marketing. We're pretty conservative about that. And so, are uh, are most of your leads out of the Hadoop conferences or word of mouth, or are you getting some good word of mouth, or is, do you have one customer yeah, right. says this was great? You need to try this out. 
Yeah, we're we're getting some good word of mouth, and and actually working through partners again like Dell and and Cloudera and HortonWorks. Um, they're they're all very good partners for us. And and for so, you, go go ahead. Sorry. Um, so, for instance, uh, the Cloudera and HortonWorks guys really under really are beginning to understand how our solution can help their customers, you know, scale. Man, that's a sounds like a lot of fun. So when people want to reach out to you, uh, I, we found you on Twitter uh, uh-huh. at aka underscore pugs. Are there is that a good way to interact with you? Are there other places where people should be following what you do? Do you have a, a blog or you know some sort we of have, YouTube? Yeah, we, like that? we have a blog on the DriveScale site. I'm the I'm the principal author for most of the entries, but do we have some others? And then Twitter is also a great way to to reach me. Okay. Awesome. Uh, another fun thing we love to ask, you know, because talking to people and learning from people is one of the best ways to get information. We like to ask, are there books or, or websites? And it doesn't have to be industry focused. It doesn't have to be this topic focused. Are there books or websites that you're kind of reading right now that you would, you know, say, hey, I think you should read this thing. It's a great story about this or this is the way I learned about this. Oh, boy. Uh you just say There's your brother's a, book. Yeah, my brother's book. So you saw that, huh? The, uh, <laughs> yeah, my, I, I actually have six brothers and two sisters. We're all pretty geeky. But my, my smart brother has just come out with a book on machine hearing. It's called Human and Machine Hearing. And he works in research at Google. So talk about spooky apps, you know, the, the way the way that these new artificial intelligence can actually listen to everything going on is really pretty astounding. And my brother's book details everything down to mathematical precision about how all this works. Yeah. Well, well, we'll, we'll be reaching out to you so we can get a show. Yeah. Yeah. Can I get a signed copy of that white paper? Does that work? Uh, which way the, my brother <laughs> yeah his his yeah. uh his google document um no, I was, I was no just... it's, it's, it's a published book that's coming out yeah. oh and, wow i i didn't see that so brent uh yeah. so there's a there, when does the book release uh february i think oh awesome um i did find his his um kind of google research paper uh, i hadn't seen the actual book itself um, yeah. Well, I mean, th- so that's awesome. Uh, it looks like you've had some good press on the register and, you know, talk to people at SiliconANGLE. Um, and, of course, it looks like you're at Dell EMC World. Um, so, you know, I think we have covered the gambit of what is DriveScale and even learned a lot of cool things about you, Tom. Um, so, you know, on behalf of the Hot Owl, I'm Brian. And I'm Brent. And, uh, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been fun. Have a great day. All right.